All right, guys, welcome back to what I'm hoping in this video should be our final teaching in the book of Colossians. Now, the last time we were here and we won't give a long introduction on this, we're just going to make it short and then move directly into the text that we're going to be exegeting today. But last time we were here, we were dealing in chapter three, where remember, we were dealing with that practical theology the section of Paul's teaching. Remember, he would divide his teachings from one theological point that he was trying to make in the introduction of his epistle. And that was the glorious Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the completeness of the believer in Christ Jesus, chapters one and two. And last week, last video, chapter three, the practical side of it, that is in responding to what was taught and or the sense of how to live. And that's what we mean when, whenever we say the word practical theology, it simply means how a Christian should live in their day-to-day -day life. And, and the basic sections that we dealt with, that section of last week, that is, what we dealt with was as a whole, Paul speaking to the Christian as, since you are a believer in Christ Jesus, have received this new life in Christ Jesus, you have been raised with Christ. That's all of that. Uh, uh, speaking of the same thing, a believer, a new life, a transformed life. Then consider your former manner of life like putting on like old clothing uh, that your former way of life, which consisted of so much unrighteousness, uncleanness, fornication, hatred, jealousy, envy, all of these types of righteous acts like unclean clothing, take them off, take them off from you. And since you have been renewed in Christ Jesus, you are alive in Christ Jesus. Let me say, having been washed by the blood of Jesus, put on new clothes that pertain to your new status in life. That is, you are a Christian. So thus, put on holiness and a number of other righteous acts. Be kind, be gentle, be long-suffering, be loving with one another, be forgiving of one another. So with a transformed life comes new behaviors. And that was the basic idea. And also remember how that he basically spoke to the general church body at large, specifically, specifically as how they would relate to one another. Nevertheless, having these characteristics as a whole, okay, bearing these characteristics as a whole, but specifically or even especially how you would relate with one another. Remember how he would say, be kind to one another, be forgiving of one another. And clearly, contextually, that one another is with respect to the body of believers. So what we did in last week's lesson, oh, I'm sorry, last video, because I actually did it the same week. But what we did was we basically taught how Paul was speaking to the body of Christ in practical righteousness since they are now saved. And that is the body of Christ as a whole. Now, as we bring this to completion, the book of Colossians as a whole, Paul is going to begin to speak uh, uh, more narrowly in, uh, to certain or specific categories. See, as he spoke last week, uh, last video, <laughs> the beginning of chapter, as he spoke to the Christian body as a whole, now he begins to speak to specific groups, to wives, husbands, children's, slaves, slave owners. He speaks those particular groups. And then he returns at the very end, that is in chapter four, to speak to the church body as a whole and then give his farewell in the letter. Okay, enough said in all of that. Let's now continue on in chapter three as we speak to these particular categories. And he begins uh, uh, with the wise. And we'll notice that he speaks particularly, that is, he just hits it. He makes a specific command. He doesn't elaborate or give any type of uh, elongated descriptions or imperatives. These are commands. He just simply gives 
for the most part, a simple command and he moves on. So he is not trying to be didactic in all of this you know, to teach uh, instructively in an expansive way. He just simply giving the commands for the Christian life. And let me say this too, before I actually get into the text, these commands that Paul is giving is for Christians. Thus it is incumbent upon us. We who are Christians to live in this way. We cannot say that this is a thing of the past. The point of all of this is if you again, go back to the beginning of chapter three, have been risen with Christ. In other words, if you are saying, then these are the commandments of God that instruct us in how we should live. And that's the bottom line. All right. So now let's just simply go into the text and I'm hoping, and I'm thinking this should be relatively a short video, even though we're going to complete chapter three and then complete all of chapter four. 318. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So he says very simply, for Christian wives, you're a Christian woman and you're married, the uh, you need to be subject to your husband. And again, and I did, um, uh, uh, I'm kind of hesitating a little bit because I don't want to get into a lot of expansive teaching about this particular point. But if you want to see uh, a more expansive teaching on this, I did um, the entire epistle uh, to the Ephesians and it's in chapter five. I think it's around verse number 22, but go and look in uh, some of the videos that I did Ephesians chapter five. And I spoke expansively on this particular material. Okay. But right now I'm going to kind of stay with the apostle Paul in giving staccato, uh, re, uh, uh, interpretation. Can I say it like that? Okay. Wives be subject. Again, that word for subject is hupotasso, which means to willingly line under. It is for the most part a military term. But the idea of it is, is that the wife, the wife, all wives should obey their husband, not a force, not that the husband is making them, but because the wife with respect to the Lord Jesus, that these commandments are the commandments of God. With respect to the Lord Jesus, the wife is willingly subjecting herself, obeying her own husband. This is not a command of force, but a command that says, if you are a Christian wife, then willingly, not forcefully, willingly, because it is the command of God. It is the order of the marital relationship. It is the way that Christians should behave in their marital relationships. You willingly obey or be subject to your husbands. And then he says, as is fitting in the Lord. And I like that particular word too, because the word that is used for fitting in the Lord Anakane, Anakane in Kurio, and I'm not going to get into a lot of Greek in this teaching. But the beauty of that word is Anakane is a perfect tense, I'm sorry, imperfect tense word, imperfect tense. It is the imperfect tense. What is important about the imperfect tense is it speaks of something that continues. And the reason why I brought that tense of the word up is. You cannot look and say, well, those were commandments that were given way back then in the Bible days. They are no longer applicable to us today. Women are not required. Christian women are not required to be in subjection to their husband today. And the very usage of this word on a cane being used in the imperfect tense, it means it is ongoing. It has no point of completion. It has no what point of completion. Thus, the command is relevant throughout all times for all generations, even today. This is still and should be the proper behavior for a Christian wife. 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And it uses the term agape. Now, if 
uh, you, you, you haven't watched my last video, you should watch that. I kind of went into some detail on the usage of this word. That is, agape is to have a self-sacrificing love, a love to the which you would sacrifice your physical life for this individual. This is the love that Jesus had for us. No greater love has a man than this, that a man should do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Agape, this is the self-sacrificing love. And also to the other side of that coin, the object, that which is being loved, is not worthy of that love. So what is the point? Husbands should love their wives self-sacrificially to the point that they would give up their lives for their wives, even if, say, for instance, the, her, the husband might say, well, she, she doesn't deserve that kind of love. And neither did God, God ask you. God didn't ask you if your wife deserved that kind of love. He just simply commanded you to do so, to love her this way anyway. It is an imperative. It is the command of God. And then he says, do not be embittered against them. And you can kind of relate all of that too. Well, I don't want to love the wife and what God didn't ask you, but she did this. She said that and she disrespects me and blah, 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 blah. That's why you, you guys should go back and look at uh, the teaching of Ephesians chapter five. But anyway, she disrespects me and all of this type of thing like this. And you know, your heart, your heart will naturally, the human heart will naturally uh, become callous and get hardened and you can become bitter against your wife because she can become contrary. And notice what he says. Do not become bitter. And the sense of bitterness simply means this. It does not mean that you cannot be angry with the wife, your wife. It doesn't mean that you cannot be dissatisfied with your wife. But what it does mean is he's saying don't continually hold things against her in an unforgiving spirit to the point it makes you bitter towards her. You see it? Don't just keep holding. Well, she did this. She said that she keeps doing. Okay. Once the forgiveness comes in, let it go. Put it in the past so that you don't become bitter and have a spirit of being unforgiving and resentful towards your wife. This is what the command is to the husband. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And for the children, they are simply to obey. And the word that is used for obedience, that children should obey their parents, that particular word, uh, and I don't want to get into a lot of the Greek, as I said earlier, but I just bring this out to let you see that this is different from the word that is used for the wife, hupotasso. For hupotasso brings in that idea to willingly be obedient. Hupakuete is not about whether you want to be obedient or not. You just do what the parents tell you to do. And it says, why? For this order of behavior of children to the parent, this pleases God. 21. Fathers do not exasperate. I like that word. Your children so that they will not lose heart. And that is fathers don't be uh, over incumbent upon the children. Don't press hard on your children. Don't, you know, be overly. That's the idea. Overly harsh, overly a strict disciplinarian, overly exasperated. It's a good interpretation, good translation. Don't be to the point that you become cruel. And that's the idea. You can be a disciplinarian. God requires, God demands for the fathers to be disciplinarians. But God does not want them to be overly burdensome to the children, whereby the instruction to the ch child and the discipline to the child begins to discourage the child. Even though we understand that children can be contrary and rebellious by nature, but nevertheless, to act in wisdom in such a way that you don't just absolutely discourage the child and you as well as your Christian beliefs become something that is just absolutely rejected by the child. Why? Because you are so harsh. You are 
over. You just too, it's just hard to live with you. God is not requiring this from the parents or namely notice what he says from the fathers, which teaches us another thing. Let me say this in passing that God looks at the father, not the mother as the ultimate disciplinarian in the family. But today in the family today, we have so many weak fathers that they are basically abscond from their position in the family as the head of the family, as the disciplinarian of the family and the father, so-called daddies pretty much leave the discipline of children to the mamas. That is not scripture. Discipline is in the hand of the father. Now the mother can discipline as well. This is not to say mothers cannot, but notice how scripture gives that to the father. It gives that obligation. It gives that responsibility to the father. Okay. And let us dads hold to these things. We discipline our children. We train up our children, even as our father, again, Hebrews chapter 12, our father, the Lord of heaven disciplines us. But anyway, then he continues on slaves. So notice we talked about three particular groups or three categories, wives, husbands, and children, that familial category. Now he expands it even further to slaves and their masters. Slaves in all things, notice that. Not what you like, not what you agree with, in all things. Obey those who are your masters on the earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Now that is that's a lengthy statement, isn't it? Notice the staccato. When you say staccato, sharp, sharp, sharp. Wives, bump and through. Husband, bump and through. Children, bump and through. Fathers, bump and through. But when he got to the slaves, he kind of went on and on with that part. And always take note in your mind. When the scripture does that, that is, began to elaborate more, it is because God knows and understands the nature of men. He knows who we are. He knows how we act. He knows how we will think. Okay. And thus God supplies, he builds into this particular section because as slaves, they may begin to think, well, he's just a human master. My true master is Jesus. Thus, I don't have to obey my human master. And so God deals with that in a sense, in a sense, in comparison at length. Okay, so what does he say? Slaves. And even as we're dealing with this issue about slaves, you may say, well, this is not uh, does not correspond to me in any way. Incorrect. Principally, this responds to anybody who is working for someone else. Anybody who is under the authority of someone else. If you have a boss, if you have a supervisor, if you have an employer, this principally applies to you, whether you are slave or whether you are employed. And I would even dare say it applies even more if you are not a slave and are employed. Why? Many people in those days were not slaves. They were not slaves by choice, but you are an employee of your own choosing. You can walk off the job anytime you want. So thus it behooves you to obey this particular command. But let's just go on and look at the text. So he simply says to obey in all things. And I emphasize that in the reading of the passage, not in what you agree with. Whatever your boss tells you to do, as long as it's not going against the commandments of God or breaking the law. And I'm talking about the laws of our country. So as long as it's not going against the commandments of God and breaking the law, and even the scripture tells you to obey the laws of your country, Romans chapter 13. 
As long as it's not doing that, whatever your boss tells you to do, you do that. And then it tells you the spirit and how you should obey your boss. Don't simply obey your boss as long as you think he is watching you or the cameras are watching you. You want to obey your boss with the spirit and the willingness in your heart. Your boss tells you to do something. You say, okay, fine. That's what you want me to do. This is okay, fine. This, that's exactly what I do. And I'm going to do my best to do what you want. If you, if you told me to stack these boxes in the corner, I'm not going to just simply just get them and just throw them in the corner any kind of way and kind of let them pile up, so to speak. I'm going to stack these boxes in the corner and I'm going to align these boxes just right. I'm going to have the edges fixed up just right. And then I'm going to stand back and look at my work and see if I'm pleased with how these boxes look, because I want my boss to be pleased with the job that I have done. So what did he say? As the slave, do the master not only with external service, merely to please men as men look watching it, but do it what? Understand that ultimately whatever you are doing for your boss, for your master, you are literally doing it to Jesus himself. Thus, if we are working on a job or whatever task that we are doing, under the supervision or in the employ of another person, recognize the true boss behind your boss standing is Jesus himself. And thus you ought to be working for that boss as if you're working for Jesus. That's why he said verse number 23, because whatever you do, you do that heartily work as for whom the Lord, the Lord here is speaking of Jesus. You are literally whatever you are doing. And see, maybe I should pause just a little bit there so you can digest what the scripture is saying. When you go to work the next morning, next day, or whenever you go to work again to all of my Christian brothers and sisters, think about it. When that supervisor, that boss tells you what to do, consider it is ultimately Jesus you are working for. Now, as you are working for Jesus, are you going to, once the boss tells you what to do, thinking about working for Jesus, are you going to begin to say, I don't know, I can't stand him. Is that how you work for the Lord Jesus with murmuring and complaining. And when you work for the Lord Jesus, are you going to, well, whatever, whatever I do, they just need to take that. They need to just be glad that I showed up for work today and didn't call in sick. <laughs> and to be honest, no doubt some of you have been going to your job, have been disrespecting your boss, your supervisor and your employee in that way. And if you have, you need to repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness and begin to do. Go again to chapter three. Since you have been raised with Christ, since you are now saved, how should you live? Take off that old nasty clothes, former way of life. Put on new clothes. Put on these righteous commandments and do them. OK, now let's go back to the text. He says, for it is the Lord that you serve. And then he says, I like verse 25. He who does the wrong will receive consequences of the wrong which he has done that without partiality. Now, this is a principle statement. That is, its application can be applied in any way. Whoever does wrong, you're going to be, you're going to receive a reward for the wrong that you have done, a penalty for the wrong which you have done. But in the context, in the context, notice what he was talking about. He was talking about slaves being obedient to the master. So what, what is he saying in the context? The slave may be thinking, well, this is just an earthly master. And even if I don't do like I'm supposed to do, and if I don't obey like I'm supposed to obey, that's fine. That's fine. Why? Jesus is my true master. And when I see Jesus, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be all right because Jesus is my true master. But Jesus, 
through the apostle Paul is the one who is commanding you how to live and serve that master, that boss. So don't think if you don't act in this way, if you don't please your supervisor, your boss, your master, right? Don't think when you stand before Jesus, he's going to ignore it. No, indeed. When you stand before Jesus, the ultimate judge and the ultimate boss, he is going to condemn you for failure to do this. So think about what we're trying to say. And it's a, it's a something of death. Don't think when you show out on the job and you disrespect your boss and you say that you're Christian, that when you see Jesus, Jesus is going to ignore that behavior. No, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences for the wrong that he has done. And he does not care. God, Jesus, the ultimate judge, is not going to take pity on you because you were a slave. You see, people like to do that. Well, he's a slave, so, you know, you know, kind of go easy on him. Ain't no going easy on nobody, whether the slave or the slave owner, whether the husband or the wife or whether the child, everybody. So here's where you bring all of this in uh, context, the general context. Everybody got to do what God has said for him to do. Wife, question, did you subject, did you submit yourself to your husband like I told you? No, I'll deal with you in the judgment. Husband, did you love your wife like I told you and didn't become bitter against her? Well, I, no, I really didn't. And I'll deal with you in the judgment. Children, person, when you were a child, if you're no longer a child and called yourself Christian, did you obey your parents like I told you? Well, I really did. And I'll deal that deal with you with that in the Lord. Slave, did you obey your human master? Well, you know, I didn't really. I'll deal with you. Or person, did you obey your boss? I'll deal with you. And boss and supervisor, did you treat your employee? Did you treat the people under you? Slave owner, did you treat your slave right? With it, like up there, I haven't gotten there yet, but that's the idea. Did you? Well, I kind of treated them harsh and I treated them like second class citizens. And no, I really didn't treat them like you do. And I'm going to deal with you when I see you. Why? Because he who does wrong will receive the consequences for the wrong he has done without partiality. And I don't care who he is. Husband, wife, child, slave, slave owner makes no difference to me. If you didn't do what I told you to do, I'll take it up with you in the judgment. Now, with all of that, so we complete chapter three with this instance, but it continues on and it's clear they should have continued, shouldn't have ended chapter three there. They should have ended chapter three in uh, verse number one of chapter four, and they should have ended chapter three there. But nevertheless, the pagination of scripture is what it is. So he continues in chapter four, and now we move there. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And that statement completes those categories in which Paul denotes, deal, deals with uh, the personal issue. Remember in the earlier part of chapter three, uh, up one through 17, for the most part, uh, he talked to the general church at large. And then he begins to deal with those specific groups in the verses that we've already covered in verses 18 through four and one. So now let me just simply comment on verse number one, and then we'll bring chapter four to a conclusion as Paul basically is giving uh, final comments and he then gives a farewell. But he says to the masters, and these are human slave owners. And again, as the slaves have practical application today with like people with an employer, supervisor, boss or whatever, and thus masters have the same practical application. Anybody that is under you, someone whom you employ, somebody you supervise or something of that nature. Okay. This applies masters. So he says, grants to your slaves, people underneath you, what justice and fairness. In other words, treat them right. Treat them fairly. Treat them in an equitable manner. Do not mistreat them simply because they are slaves. Simply because you are the boss and over them. Why? 
because as you are their slave master, as you are their boss, you got a big boss too. And your big boss ain't on earth. Your big boss is in heaven itself. He is over you, over all. So you treat your slaves, you treat your employees, you treat the people underneath you right all the time in fear of your boss who is in heaven watching how you treat them. Okay. Now, with all of that being said, let us now continue in chapter four as we bring this video to a close. And I think we'll be able to move pretty fairly through this because for the most part, it's uh, merely informative. Okay. Some things we'll bring out, but you'll see. Let's move. Devote yourself. Now, as he moves on, he goes back. He Remember, he started chapter three with the general church. Then he moved to what we just covered, the specific groups. And now he moves back from the specific groups, uh, wise husband, things of that nature, all the way up to the slave master. He moves from those specific groups. Now he starts to talk to what? The general church once again. What to the general church? Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at, at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door, uh, open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been imprisoned, that I may speak it, make it clear in a way I ought to speak. So he just simply says in all of this, that the life of a Christian should be saturated with prayer, devote yourselves to prayer and always being mindful of all things of your life, of your past, of your present and of the future coming of the Lord. Keeping alert in it, keeping alert in your prayer life, keeping alert in your life and always everything with everything in your prayers, in your life with thanksgiving, always giving thanks to God for everything. And then he says in verse number three, and he requests a prayer for himself as well as those uh, fellow workers alongside of Paul. Pray for us. And he asked them to pray that Paul might be able to continue preaching the gospel and that God might word Paul's mouth to preach the gospel, declare the wisdom of God in a way that is pleasing to God in the way that he ought to speak. Verse number five. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, this is very important. So what is he saying? Christians, number one, the, the, the private life of a Christian is very important. And the public life of a Christian is just as important. There should be no distinction in the such. You live holy in both the private and the public. But here, Paul is stressing what? The public life, how you live in front of other people. And what does he say? Conduct yourself with wisdom toward, how do you know it's public? Outsiders, those who are outside the church those who are unbelievers, those who are outside the faith, making most of the opportunity. So what does he mean? As you live, you want to live circumspectly. I think that's how King James said it. But anyway, I like that too. Uh, King James is such a poetical translation of scripture. But anyway, uh, uh, to live in such a holy manner. And the idea is having a mindset looking to evangelize. That's the idea. So you want to live right. And, and, and the idea, hopefully that in your living right, the way that you live, the way that you talk and the way that you carry yourself, people will see a difference inside of you. And, and I think who was it? Was it Peter? Who, one who, and they begin to ask about the hope that lies within you. But anyway, but the point is so that it might give you an opportunity to bear witness of Jesus, to testify of your faith. And that's why he says what? Um, making the most of the opportunity, the opportunity to preach or to declare or to witness to some unbeliever 
Christ Jesus. And when you are witnessing to Christ Jesus, notice the next verse. So therefore, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So in the words that you use to the unbeliever, whether generically, but especially in your testimony with Christ Jesus, you want to speak in such a way and notice how he gives it the language of food, eating food. Notice you can eat food, but when food is really received, when food is really received and enjoyed by the eater, it is food that is properly seasoned and thus they are able to enjoy it. So what? Your words should be seasoned how you speak to the unbeliever. You need to be wise in how you speak to them. Your words should be seasoned with salt. What? So that you'll know how to respond to each person. I like that too. I like it, but I'm not going to get into it, but I like it. You see, you don't respond to everybody in some same generic way. You got to talk, note who you're talking to, the person that you're talking to, how they approach you, how they speak to you, all types of things, dynamics can come into play when you begin to speak about Christ to people. There's a time when you can speak to Christ as people gently and kindly. And then there's another way in which you can speak with a measure of rebuke and say, no, this is not right. This is not correct. But nevertheless, this is why we need to have that salt in our words. It has to be seasoned in such a way that the word can be received by the person. Okay. So thus, this is what he's talking about. But anyway, living righteously uh, uh, to the outside world, knowing how to speak to the outside world with the wisdom concerning your life in Christ Jesus. Verse number seven. Now he begins to speak about, remember, Paul is in a Roman imprisonment. We believe that this is Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And so thus he begins to speak and relate to issues concerning these things. And this is, this is the part of the letter that forms the farewell part of the letter, the goodbye. Seven, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord will bring you information for I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts and with him Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number they will inform you about the whole situation here and that's self-explanatory Paul sent Tychicus and Onesimus to the church of Colossus, to the church of Colos. He sent them and it was Tychicus who was the bearer of this letter, this very letter that we're studying right now, the epistle to the Colossians. Uh, Tychicus bought, took this letter from the apostle Paul to the church of Colos and he was accompanied alongside of Onesimus and Onesimus was also one of the members. He was from Carlos and we learn even more from about the person of Onesimus. Now we won't get into that, but we learn more about him from the epistle to Philemon. And I also did uh, a, a video that studied the entire letter of that one chapter epistle, the epistle to Philemon. And we find out that Onesimus was a runaway slave who encountered Paul and became a believer. And thus he began to minister to Paul and Paul wrote a letter to Philemon, another believer who was from Carlos. Philemon was also from the same area. And Paul was requesting that Philemon would release Onesimus from his service to Philemon because Philemon was the slave master. Onesimus was the runaway slave. Paul sent Onesimus back with this letter, the letter Philemon, requesting that Onesimus be released. Philemon would release him voluntarily to the service of Paul. And that's the basic idea. And this is this person, Onesimus, and this is what Paul calls him Beloved, he was a beloved brother of the apostle Paul and all of the fellow servants uh, 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 
with Paul and what? One of your number. He is from Carlos. Okay. And these two men would tell the church of Carlos how Paul is doing. They would bring them word on how Paul is doing. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings. And now here's, you can see the uh, goodbyes, the, the farewell. He says, he said hello, but uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Barnabas, cousin, cousins, uh, Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement. So we have three men, Aristarchus, uh, Mark, and Justice. Jesus, who is called Justice. They are simply saying, tell the church of Carlos that we said Hello, and that's what it means. He send, they send you greetings. So Paul is simply putting this in writing. And, and Aristarchus, as he simply says, was a fellow prisoner with Paul. And these other men were ministers to Paul in his imprisonment. And also, too, verse number 11 lets us know that these three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, were Jews. Notice, they were of the circumcision. They were Jews, okay? Verse number 12, Epaphras, now we remember him from chapter one, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify uh, for him that he has a deep concern for you, and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So remember that too, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, but let me just say this part before I get into that. Remember, as we taught you earlier in chapter one, go back and check out that video. It was Epaphras. Paul, although Paul is writing this epistle to the Colossians, to the church in Colossus, Paul did not found the church. Paul did not preach the gospel there. It was Epaphras who founded this particular church and Epaphras preached the gospel to them. Okay. And it was Epaphras who also alerted the apostle Paul because notice Epaphras is here with Paul. He alerted the apostle Paul of some of the problems that were beginning to happen in the church. And that's what we cover in chapter one. These Judaizers coming into the church teaching of the insufficiency incompleteness, the, uh, that Christ was not God of Jesus Christ. They were bring all these false doctrine, keeping of the law, circumcision, the worship of angels. And thus Epaphras made Paul aware of what was taking place. Thus it gave Paul the opportunity to respond in writing. Thus we have the epistle to the Colossians. It is this Epaphras that he is talking about. He is what? One of your number, Paul calls him a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He also sends his greetings and Paul lets them know how much Epaphras genuinely loves them and genuinely cares for them as well as for those in Hierapolis and Laodicea. Okay. Verse 13, Luke, the beloved physician sends you his greetings and also Demas. Now, I want to I pause there for a particular reason. Don't want to be uh, dogmatic. We can't be overly dogmatic, but we know Luke accompanied Paul. We see this in the book of Acts. Luke accompanied Paul in his evangelistic travels. So Luke here is also saying, tell them I said hello. What I want to note is notice how Luke is not a uh, ascribed along those other three, Astarchus and uh, Mark and Justice, who were of the circumcision, that is Jews. Luke is not counted with the group of the circumcision, which seems to indicate that it is very possible that Luke was a Gentile. Why? Because Paul did not mention Luke 
along with the other members of the circumcision. But he mentioned Luke along with the group that were of the Gentiles. Now, we cannot be overly dogmatic about that position, but this is a very strong and possible suggestion concerning Luke. And then he mentions Andemus. Now, you can almost kind of preach a sermon about Demas because here, Demon is saying, say hey to the church of Carlos. So Demon is here mentioned in a very favorable light one of those fellow workers alongside of Paul. But sad to say, when Paul is uh, near his death and he writes his final letter, uh, the epistle to Timothy, 2 Timothy, we find out that Demas had later forsaken Paul. And Paul said these words, for Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me. And so Demas here has a very wonderful, in this book, in, in the epistle to the Colossians, he has a very wonderful uh, mention by the apostle Paul. But notice, by the end of Paul's life, somehow, and we're not, now Paul is not speaking so much about Demas' Demas's salvation, because if you are truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But Paul is talking about the race. Paul is talking about the occupation. Paul is talking about the service that was committed to Demas and the service that Demas committed himself to. The service in serving, serving Christ alongside of Paul in the gospel. Demas started the race. Demas what? He started the race. But by the time that we get to Paul's end of Paul's life in his earthly ministry, Demas did not finish the race. So even though we have a mention of Demas in a positive light, by the time we get to the end of Paul's life, Demas has dropped out of the race. And that allows us to understand one of Paul's next statement. But watch this. Let's continue. Still, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. So Paul just simply says to the church, the brethren in Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, Tell them hello and tell them we say hello. And also Nympha, which is a feminine name, a woman who was uh, allowing a church to congregate in her house. She was not the pastor. She was not the elder. She was no kind of minister in the sense of having authority in the church. She was simply allowing the church to meet in her house. So she was probably a, a, a well-to-do woman having a large home and the church. Remember, the church did not have separate church buildings at that time. This was a later on event. And so she would allow the church, the members to congregate in her house. So say hello to Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter 16 is read among you, so that's when we can see that this letter was to be intended. Oh, let me just read it all. Read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from uh, Laodicea. So let me come in on that. So when this church, when this letter is read among you, which means that when the letter was received to the, by the Colossians, the point of the letter was there would be a reader, no doubt, probably the elder of the church, would take the letter that Paul had written, stand before the whole congregation and read the letter before the church. Then he says, also read the church from uh, the letter, read, read, have it read in the church of Laodicea and you read my letter from Laodicea. Y'all forgive me for going fast, but I think this part, you can kind of understand it yourself, but I want to make a few comments on it anyway. So he says, what? This letter that I'm sending to Carlos also shared this letter with the church of Laodicea. And I, Paul, wrote a letter to the church of Laodicea. I want you guys to read that letter as well. So a couple of points that I make here. The letters that Paul wrote to Carlos and to Laodicea. Or we can understand it for the epistles as a whole. They were intended to be circular letters. That is, even though Paul may have written the letter to a particular church and dealing with uh, particular issues in the local congregation, 
He still intended, he understood it to be the word of God and intended this information to be shared with all of God's people. Thus, you read the letter that Paul sent to you and you share with others and you get the letters that Paul shared with others and you read their letters. And now concerning the letter to the Laodicea, we don't really know uh, uh, exactly what letter this referred to. Some think that it possibly was a reference to the epistle of the Ephesians. So if it, if it is that epistle, he's saying you guys read that. But nevertheless, if it is not that particular letter, if it was, as some people say, lost. And I don't want to get into all of that, but let me just simply say it this way. It is it was the divine will that God did not keep this particular letter. God chose that this letter should not be kept in the corpus of what we call scripture today. It was a letter that Paul wrote to Laodicea, if indeed it's not the epistle of the Ephesians. It was indeed a letter written, but in the sovereign will of God, it's not lost. Like people talking about lost letters of the Bible, lost book. It's not lost. God did not determine this to be preserved as scripture. So thus, we do not have it today. Okay, now let's get back to this part. Remember when I talked about Demas and the point about Demas having a good start that we see here in Colossians. And by the time that we got to second Timothy to the, to the end of Paul's life, Paul said that Demas had abandoned him because Demas loved this world, this present world more than his ministry. And remember me harping on the point, he didn't finish the race. He did not finish the ministry that which God had given him. He left, he abandoned. Thus we can see Paul's words here in verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord and that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be to you. So his final words were to a particular member, no doubt an elder in the in the Colossian membership, an elder in the church of Carlos by the name of Archippus. Notice he commands him be in high regards. Take heed, be faithful to the ministry that you received in the Lord and Complete it. Be faithful to this ministry. Do what you're supposed to do. Make full use of your ministry. So you can see in a contrary sense. What? Consider what I just said about Demas. When you get to the end of Paul's life, Demas it proved not to be faithful to his ministry. He forsook it. And now you can see what? How now Paul says to what? Archippus. You be faithful. Now, even though Paul is not saying, I know demons are going to be unfaithful, but this is the point that I, me, Eric, I'm stressing to you as we can see this as we stand off from the scripture. Demons prove to be unfaithful. How prophetic of scripture that Paul should emphasize in the very same letter that he speaks well of a man who would later on become unfaithful to his ministry. How prophetic of scripture that he would now speak to Archippus commanding him to remain faithful, remain faithful. Now, and for final words concerning Archippus, and here is where we can understand the issue. Remember, Epaphras, Epaphras was the founder of this church. He brought the gospel to the church. And we now see Epaphras being with Paul. Notice what Paul said. Epaphras also sends you his greetings. So as Epaphras left the church, he would not leave the church without a shepherd. And that shepherd that he left the church with would be Archippus. And so thus he sends word, Paul, he sends apostolic authoritative words back to Archippus. You have been left as the shepherd of the church. The care of God's sheep has been left in your charge. 
You do your job. And that's Archippus. And so he finally ends it and says, I, Paul, write this greeting. That is, when Paul came to the final section of the letter, the farewell address, Paul wrote it with his own hands that was common for Paul to do. The rest of the letter, Paul spoke it, and that letter, Amenuesis, that letter was written by a secretary of sort, okay? But when the rest of the letter came, the end of the letter, Paul signed it with his own hand. He wrote the farewell address, and he signed it with his own hand. I, Paul, write this greeting, this greeting with my own hand. And Paul asked them to remember him in his imprisonment, that is, that he is in prayer, and to try to help him during his imprisonment. And finally, he doesn't end with himself. He ends with them. Grace be to you. All right. That ended up being a little longer than I had anticipated. But nevertheless, guys, thanks for joining me. And we have now reached the conclusion of Paul's epistle to the Colossian. And if I had to finally, since we are now at the end, give a summary, summary of the book epistle as a whole, Paul was writing to deal with some disturbances in the church, false Judaizers, Jewish heretical teachers bringing in all types of doctrines about the keeping of the law and being circumcised and keeping of the law of Moses not understanding the person of Jesus, that he is God, the creator, that God who became flesh, the God of our salvation, and that faith in him alone was sufficient. They, they, the church of Collis was being threatened, uh, abandoning faith in Jesus alone because of the influence of these Jewish teachers telling them, uh, being circumcised, worshiping of angels. And Paul had to come and lay down and recertify the gospel that Epaphras, their original founder and pastor, had taught to them. And thus, as Paul laid that down, chapters one and two, he then says, now respond to righteous living. Since you indeed are saved, respond Live in a manner that pleases God. Remember your former life and how that you live in all manner of unrighteousness and disregard this behavior like unclean clothing. And you who are now raised from the dead are new in Christ. Put on new clothing and let this new clothing be righteousness in Christ Jesus. And in this righteousness, have compassion toward one another, that is the body of Christ, loving one another, kind to one another, gentle to one another, forgiving one another, and be mindful of how you live in your public life to the world so that you can bear a good testimony toward Jesus Christ. But even so, particularly be mindful as Christians, wise, you live a certain way. Be subject to your husband. Husbands, you live a certain way. Love your wife. Don't be bitter against them. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, people who got bosses today, obey your masters. And you obey your master as if you are obeying Jesus, knowing that it is Jesus, not so much your master, that you are serving. And master, treat your slaves right Treat them with equity. They are even brothers and sisters, those who are Christians. And remember, you have a master, your own self. And everybody remember, whatever wrong that you do, Jesus will judge you for that wrong. So obey these commandments. And finally, y'all remember my bonds. Remember that I'm in prison Pray for me, pray for us, that we can continue to preach the word. And those who are with me, they all send you my greetings. And he gave a number of names of people from the circumcision. Then he gave people who were from the Gentiles. They all say hello. And in finality, I say to Archippus, remember your ministry. 
you have been left in charge of the church. I say to all, remember my imprisonment. God bless you. All right. That is the summary for the epistle to the Colossians. All right, guys, enough of that. I enjoy the scriptures so much, and I hope that you have enjoyed them alongside with me. And if these teachings have been a blessing and a true joy to you, I'm asking for you to support the ministry. Uh, uh, there is a sense of reciprocity. What did Paul say? If we have sold unto you what? Spiritual things. It is no great thing if we should reap your carnal things. I'm asking you to support this ministry so that we can continue to bring you the word even more and more and that I can devote more time to this particular venture in bringing you this word so that you can get it in a sense, in a sense, without encumbrance, a verse by verse teaching of the scripture. But there is a link in the description that you can use to support the ministry. And even in that cash app thing, we do whatever that is too. We don't want to get into all of that, but you'll see the link in the description. Also, if you've enjoyed the video, like, and if you have not subscribed, subscribe to the channel. All right, guys, God bless you. Looking forward to beginning our brand new study of our next book. See you next time.